Thank you, Amber. That's one of my favorite songs. Not because it's Christmassy, but because of the part where it says, fall on your knees. And I'm looking forward to that, that the whole world, all of creation will worship our Lord and Savior. Talks about that in Philippians. And I'm thankful for the elect that will worship our Savior voluntarily. And I think about the rest of the people that have been shaking their fists at God their entire life. They too will worship the Lord because he is worthy. He is God Almighty. And with everything that's going on in our lives, whether it's sick kids, a tornado in Kentucky, COVID, you name it, God's in control. There's, there's not one molecule, one atom of the entire universe that he did not speak into existence and is a supreme being over it. We can get upset because we live in the, the here and now in a time-constrained world, and when we have problems, they seem huge to us. Whether it's a flat tire, you know, the coffee wasn't perfect, you name it. But if you take a, a eternal view, that's a good illustration about momentary problems. I, I encourage you to refocus on God, to, to get into this word. This helps us recalibrate our minds, our hearts, our souls, even coming together as a family to worship, to live out, as my wife would say, the one another's. That's how we have a solid daily Christian life, is putting it into practice, serving one another, serving and worshiping our Lord through, through awesome songs. So that's a mini-sermon. If you liked it, there's the offering tape boxes in the back. Um, but now some announcements. From Chris Shepard, one of our AIT missionaries, Dear Grace Reformed Church, thank you for the honorarium you sent me. It was a blessing to our family. I hope to see some of you at the TCC together. I don't know what TCC. Isaac, what is? True Church Conference. Okay. In February. And see Isaac if you want to go. I hear that it's a fantastic opportunity. Maybe we can visit at breakfast one morning. Merry Christmas to all from Shirley and Alex Bendina out in cold Arizona. Another thank you. Thank you so much for the continued support at AIT and its mission family. We are extremely grateful. That's Steve at Anchors and Truth. All our December offering is going towards missions unless you designate on the check. And if you do designate on the check, spell my name right, but December we're giving, so just a little notice of that. For some announcements, there's the open house at the Layton starting at 5.30. Please RSVP to me if you haven't about our Christmas luncheon the day after Christmas. There'll be no Sunday school that day, so sleep in a little bit. 
the men's Bible study on Thursday is on pause. And right after church, moms and dads, the kids are going to be practicing up here. And thank you for your patience as the wall gets rebuilt in the back. I figure that Nehemiah did it in 52 days, so I've got a little bit of time still. Well, good morning. Let's stand and take our hymn books and turn to 186. Joy has dawned upon the world, promised from creation. God's salvation now unfurled, hope for every nation. 186, joy has dawned.
Canterbury family up to help light the third candle today. You can find it in your worship folder. There'll be a part for the congregation to speak. And so if you'll look for that part and speak that we'll do this in just a moment. This is uh, really one of my favorite times of the year because really even the secular world is singing about the glory of Christ. King of kings, Lord of lords. And I hope each of you have a special idea and concept of what that truly means as you worship Christ in this season. By the way, just as a reminder, I'm looking forward again till next week. We'll have the, the children uh, sing in the morning. And that is uh, one of my favorite times just to hear the voices of these little ones sing the praises to Christ our King at Christmas time. It's great. That evening, that'll be next week, we'll follow it up with a candlelight Christmas communion. And if you haven't been a part of that, it's a great, joyous time for us to uh, begin this uh, right before Christmas to be able to worship Christ. Uh, we'll have some actually professional uh, cellists with us that evening who are friends of ours. And that morning, I think a professional pianist is coming from uh, Nashville, so you'll see a big smile on the Alexon's face. So in any case, we're going to have a grand and glorious time worshiping Christ. Today, as you pull out your worship folder and look at this third advent, as the Kenimers come to remind us of it, uh, let's focus on Christ the Savior. One of you will light the candle. can't light the candle, we can't worship Christ. So what's up with this? That's quite all right. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful that we're able to gather together today here as your people to worship Jesus Christ, who is indeed Lord. I pray for each one of us, as we have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, that th that thought will ring true and truer as the days approach when we look forward to your coming. We're thankful indeed you have come to save us from our sin. Our sin, the wages of which is eternal death. 
and through Christ we have the gift of eternal life. No greater gift could be granted to us. And in this season of giving and, th and thoughts of Christmas and Christ's first advent, Father, we're thankful that indeed you have loved us to the degree that you have sent your only and unique son to live, to bear our sin on his body, to die, pay it in full, and rise again and ascend on high, prepare a place for us, and we are eagerly anticipating and waiting. We're looking forward for the return of Jesus Christ. I pray, for, for Lord, that even today, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I pray for your people that we would, in whatever circumstance we might find ourselves in as we are anticipating and waiting the return of Christ, that we would not do so in frustration, but in absolute hope. May the futility of whatever we find ourselves in and experience from time to time, may it not diminish the grandeur and thoughts in our mind of the return of Jesus Christ. I pray this Christmas season would be one of great celebration. May we enjoy all the good gifts that you have given us, including this gathered body of Christ who desires to worship Christ. What a beautiful experience for us to be gathered together from different perspectives and walks of life, yet unified through the one Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, we would enjoy the good gifts. May the food even taste better these days. May the beauty and brilliance of the decorations all redound to your glory, all of them looking forward to the incredible state to be in your presence with fullness of joy. May our joy be filled in Christ. May our peace with you be established through Jesus Christ. And may the love of God in Christ Jesus overwhelm us in this season. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand again together and continue our singing. Turning number 177. Lo, how a rose air blooming. True man, yet very God from sin and death. He saves us from life and
Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be from Psalm 85 and Matthew 1, uh, verses 18 through 25. Matthew will be, or excuse me, Psalms will be found on four, page 493 in your pew Bible, and Matthew will be found on page 807. Again, that's Psalm 85 on page 493 and Matthew 1 on page 807. Let's begin. The Lord, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you pro prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God, God the Lord will speak, for he will he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness, and, and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Now turn to Matthew 1, starting at verse 18. And that's page 807. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. When Joseph woke, woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you give us. And thank you for the reminders, Lord, of your grace and your mercies that you show to us, Lord, as we don't deserve it. We thank you for sending us your son to forgive us of our sins as he died on the cross and bared our pain and sin and suffering for us, Lord. And uh, as we have constantly de denied you, sinned against you, Lord, but yet you took us out and you saved us, Lord. We pray that you would continue to show this grace 
to all generations, and that you would uh, forgive us for of all we do, Lord. And we pray that we will never forget the story, the wonderful story of you sending your son to suffer for us, Lord. And we pray that we will continue to always be able to freely and wholly worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your copy of God's Word to John.
but I'll read it for our hearing, beginning in verse 16. Speaking of Pilate, so he delivered him, that's Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was, was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us <coughs> not tear it, but let us cast lots for it to for it to see whose it was to be. This is the fulfilled scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the, uh, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all now was now finished, said, the fulfilled scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and then they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and wine. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and we know that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
Not one of his bones will be broken. And then the scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you will grant to us today, this day, a clear picture of the cross. May we see and savor Jesus Christ. May his glory redound in our mind and be the joy and rejoicing of our souls. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned to you as we introduced this text, last week our focus was on the glory of Christ in the fulfillment of scriptures on the cross. Today, I want to just look at some scenes, if you will, scenes that we have passed over. This text is a narrative, that is, it is a story, and one way to read it that is helpful, I think, is to look at it in the little vignettes or scenes that are along the way. See what's going on in those pictures. Now, Admittedly, some elements of a story are incidental to it. So we'll try not to focus on that. But we will focus on those things that are primary. Notice how our text is introduced in verse 16. Christ then is delivered to be crucified. Handed over. Remember and we can get this from the other gospel writers. Christ had already been beaten here, as John mentions, in a humiliation, if you will, and that didn't work. He receives another beating. This is part of being delivered over to be crucified, to be executed. Part of the process was, the initial phase, was to beat the victim to an absolute bloody pulp because they weren't going to recover from this type of punishment. So they can free will beat him as much as they want, because he's going to die anyway. And there were some victims who did not survive that level of scourging. Jesus does. They then strip him naked to humiliate him even further. They then affix him to a wooden stake with a cross piece, hence a cross, by nails. So he can't get away and so that it creates additional pain and torture. It is not a glorious scene in that visual, physical image. Not in that sense. There is no beauty that we should behold him as Isaiah had prophesied. Not in that sense. However, if you focus on what's going on, we said last week, the fulfillment of Scripture, now what's going on around the cross, that's what I want us to look at today. Even in the midst of this great ugliness, this great shame, the beauty of Christ's majestic glory shines forth. And you'll see it in all that he does. And I'll point out a few things with the time that I can. I want you to step back a moment. We focused in on Christ beaten to a bloody pulp, 
in a state of humiliation, impaled on a wooden cross. But take a broader view of that hillside, and you'll notice what is there in verse 18. He is crucified, and John notes, as well as the other gospel writers, which we'll look at as they provide more detail, but John notes in verse 18, there's two others with him. One on one side, and one on the other. Jesus in the midst. That's what you see. Matthew provides further detail of this particular scene. And so, I invite you to look at it with me in Matthew chapter 27 and beginning in verse 38. Matthew 27, 38. Here's a more detailed picture of that scene. Christ with two others. Matthew 27, verse 38, describes who these others are next to Jesus. They are described as robbers. Note here, verse 38, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. The word robber here means a plunderer, a highwayman, if you will. It was the same description given of Barabbas, who the crowd chose to let go. Thieves were typically not crucified. These men were greater criminals of the lowest order. Maybe in our day we can think of gang members, some sort of violent thugs, if you will. Insurrectionists, certainly, but in that sense, violent the crowd would not care for this guy. Even if they hated the governmental institution, they wouldn't want to be around these guys because one of them could take slit your own throat. These were low criminal elements of that society. And they, on either side of Jesus, deservedly received judgment. Christ is between those thugs. Truly a rose between two thorns. Do you see the picture? The highest virtue amidst the lowest vice. That's what is there. That's the picture that's going on. And Matthew then describes that scene beyond those two thugs hanging out, if you will, crucified with Jesus as if he is one of them, which he certainly is not. Then you have the crowds that do pass by and see that scene, verse 39 in Matthew. Those who passed by derided him. They, they wagged their heads. You get the picture, right? You don't even need an explanation. Oh, yeah. They're mocking him and deriding him and saying, Oh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. They twisted Jesus' words. They didn't really want to hear what he had to say, so they take what he said and make it as if he are saying something else. 
they're justifying their own actions, right, and assuaging their own guilt by creating a caricature of Christ that is far different of who he actually is. Politicians in our day do this all the time. I don't have to even bother identifying them. You know exactly what I'm talking about. They'll hear someone say one thing and twist it as if they're saying something totally different. That's what's going on here. Jesus had taught them about the temple and being destroyed in a metaphorical sense. John chapter 2, I'll read it for you. We will stay in Matthew. I'll go back here in a second, so I'll just read this for you. In Matthew chapter 2, I'm sorry, John 2, verse 18, the Jews, these same religious leaders, they said, well, what sign are you going to do for us? Now, Jesus had done many signs. They asked for it again. That is what, what authentic miracle will you do to demonstrate the authority of your message Jesus answers, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Obviously, he's not talking physically. He's doing an analogy indeed. The Jews respond, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? They're not listening. They're twisting. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture that Jesus had spoken. These antagonists had no desire to believe Christ, nor his word His disciples indeed did. And that's who that message was for. It is a message of faith for his disciples. It is a message of judgment to those who will hear his word and twist them and rebel against him. Jesus' purpose in coming into the world was for this very day To be an atonement for sin. The scriptures had led up to this. All that had been fulfilled as we noted before. All of it being fulfilled. Christ is doing it. They're ignoring God's very word that they know. If he comes down from the cross. It would prove he's not God. Because he wouldn't fulfill the scripture. The fact that he stays on it. Demonstrates that he is. Otherwise, he would be a liar and could not be God incarnate. Jesus had foretold exactly what was going to happen. And it does. And what he says is scripture and a fulfillment of it. Back to Matthew 27. Notice verse 41 Only the crowds are mocking him, so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders. The whole lot of them. Mocking him. He saved others. Can he save himself? 
He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. They know what Christ claimed. He claimed to be God incarnate. Their argument here is, okay, it's a little different from the crowd. Now, this group is saying, well, you know, if you do this one more miracle, one more time, then we will believe. And the answer is, they will not. Jesus had already done enough signs to demonstrate that indeed he is God. They refuse to repent. They refuse to believe. And Jesus has taught his disciples this very fact. In their own ignorance, they underestimate their own depravity and demand a God made in their own likeness. But God is not in the likeness of man in that sense. Jesus would explain to his disciples, I'll read it for you. We'll stay in Matthew because i got something else to say. But I'll read it for you. You remember Jesus explaining to those that were challenging in Luke 16, 31. He says this, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that means the scripture, okay? If they don't, hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Your depravity is so great, you just don't need another little sign. What you need is a supernatural faith, a work in the heart to change your heart. And that comes only through the work of God. It is mediated through his word. And this is why we constantly read it. We constantly sing it. We constantly include it in our prayers. We talk about the word because it gives life. The Holy Spirit will indeed take this word and bring about faith for you to latch hold on. Faith doesn't come by a careful analysis of facts. All the facts line up. You can go measure them all you want. They could have done it with the very scriptures that they had and been overwhelmed by the facts. That's not going to do it. It's going to come through hearing the words of Christ. Matthew 27 and verse 44 I set that up to tell you what was going on in the scene and for you to note also that these robbers, verse 44, who were right next to Christ, they also reviled him in the same way. What the imagery is, you know, the crowd is sitting there mocking. That's one example the crowd's giving. Perhaps they gave more and uh, and then you have the... Jews and the priests and, and the elders, they're all reviling him. And then you got these two low-life robbers, highwaymen, criminals, either side, and they're chiming in. Oh, yeah, if you're God, 
come down. Luke fills us in a little bit more in the conversation of these robbers. And I invite you to turn there. Luke 23. Luke 23. It is helpful then to have four Gospels so that you can fill out what's going on. Here's additional insight given by Luke in this scene. Luke 23, and we'll jump down to verse 39. Everyone's mocking Jesus. And then one of the criminals, verse 39, who were hanged, railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, what, why, why would they expect to be saved? But here they're railing against him, mocking him, if you will. But notice the turn that happens in verse 40. The other, that is the other criminal, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Here, this very criminal says the same thing. He recognizes there is no guilt in him. The Jews couldn't come up with any guilt. Pilate couldn't come up with any guilt. The crowd couldn't come up with any guilt. And here, these robbers close to him, seeing all that's going on in the midst of this crucifixion, he affirms the same thing. This man, wait a minute, he has done nothing wrong. Don't you fear God? And the fear of God comes on this robber, this sinner. Exposed to the very words of Christ. And so he says, this is, this is the miracle turn in the conversation and this scene. Verse 42. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's confessing Jesus Christ as king. He's confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. We're not given all of his thoughts and all of the conversation, but that's what this expression is. And when you do that, it, it essentially recognizes, which he does here in the text, note here, we're, we're worthy of death. He recognizes his own guilt. He recognizes Christ's lack of, of guilt, right? And he calls him king. And he wants him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. That's an expression of repentance. Repentance and faith. And here is the most, some of the most beautiful words anyone could ever hear. Verse 43. This is Jesus speaking. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If you could guarantee that phrase said of you, <laughs> I think you would be impaled on a cross, wouldn't you? When I thought about that. 
I mean, to have those words expressed by the Lord of glory, today you will be in paradise, nothing else matters, does it? What, a, what an incredible statement. Truly, he's saying, amen, verily, this is an absolute fact. Can I tell you this? Anyone, I don't care if you're listening in accidentally and you found this somewhere on the internet or if you're here present with us today. I don't care what you've done. If you're the lowest life criminal ever and you recognize you're worthy of condemnation, but that Christ does not call out to him in repentance and faith. And I guarantee you one thing. Truly, this day you will be with him. Christ will take you. In the darkness of man's wickedness here, Christ in the midst of them, this glorious light of salvation, he has truly come to save his people from their sin. And in this darkest hour, that is demonstrated right here. Glory. Glory. Well, we've taken a broader view, seen the scene as it's set up with the robbers on either side. One of them recognizing the Lord of glory, repenting and believing, and be affirmed that he will be with Christ. But I want you now to, in your mind, as we look back in John chapter 19, and look at verse 19. Now I want your focus, your attention, rather small. There's a placard on the cross, a small one. Focus in on that. And you'll see the scene as it's explained. An inscription is put on the cross. It reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And of course, the Jews don't want that on there. Look closer at this placard written above the cross and affixed to it. It's written in three languages, verse 20. Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Pretty much the whole community is covered. Insiders and outsiders and those alongside. Everyone, essentially, could then read this very statement. That's why it was written in three different languages. And the phrase that Jesus is the king of the Jews. They don't want him to do that. They told him not to write it. That, that is, the Jews told Pilate not to. But Pilate simply says... What I've written, I've written. Pilate was coerced, if you will, forced to some degree to give in to this crucifixion. He wanted to free Jesus. He declared him not guilty. He tried all kinds of ways to let him go. And yet in the end, he conceded. He agreed to have him executed. Because the Jews were threatening to have some sort of insurrection and uprising and that would create a problem for Pilate. And he wanted his place, his power. He didn't want that disrupted. So they got one over him. 
But Pilate's not a good man. He's a wicked man. So here, I think, I'm not stretching it much, I think his intention then is to stick it back to him. What I've written, I've written. I'm not changing it. I mean, they, they made me crucify Christ, but I'm going to stick it to you and say, this is your king. The Jews rejected Jesus as king. He wants to get back with them. Normally, in their culture at this time, they would put a placard above the criminal and put his offense, what he did. So the folks would know that, oh, well, this guy is being tortured to death in a horrific way. What in the world did he do? Oh, I see that. So I'm not going to do that anymore because if I do that, then that's what's going to happen to me. That's the whole point of this little sign. The crime that's going to be charged. Well, what crime would Jesus have? (laughs) Well, what else would he write on there? He was not guilty and no one had a charge against him. This is why the robbers can look over and say, there's no guilt in him. What's on his, what's placard above his head says, right? We're, We're justly condemned. He's unjustly condemned. His placard simply says he's king of the Jews in three languages. So everybody would know he isn't, he personally isn't worthy of death. Many the text said, read it. And that's the point. So that all would know. Unwittingly, this pagan governor testifies to the absolute truth. <laughs> that Jesus is Lord. He didn't intentionally do it. <laughs> but he couldn't help himself. All of creation, I would argue, testifies that Jesus is Lord. But most of us run around with earplugs and blindfolds. And we can't hear it and we can't see it. Let me show you a couple of texts that I have time to do. So you can... Unpack that, so we can unpack this point together a little bit. Turn to Luke chapter 19. And here's my argument. Inanimate objects, yes, even this little placard, are objects that testify to the glory of God, specifically in Jesus Christ. They will, they must, and they are. The heavens, all of heaven is declaring the glory of God. Next time you see something beautiful and breathtaking, that is just a glimpse of his glory. You want to see the fullness of it? You will need to have the ability, the capacity to appreciate it. I find this interesting here is Jesus in Luke chapter 19 and verse 37. He's going 
along the way down to the Mount, uh, Mount of Olives. And the whole multitude of his disciples, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They'd seen the miracles of Christ. And they're saying, verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, here, recognizing Jesus is what? He is Lord. He is king. And he's doing these miracles. They see it. They testify to the authenticity of who Jesus is, what he's doing. And they're out praising him, saying this, Blessed, this is an act of worship of Jesus Christ the king. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're seeing a glimpse of his glory. Now, here comes the, the what do they call it, a wet blanket? The Pharisees, verse 39. They're part of this crowd. They're, they're seeing what's going on. They're hearing about this worship and praise to Jesus Christ the Lord and this call of his glory, and they cry out then, Teacher, re rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop it. I find this fascinating, Jesus' answer. Verse 40. I tell you, if these were silent, the rocks would cry out. The very stones would cry out. Ponder that for a minute. There are times in which Christ must be praised. His glory must be exalted. And if the whole earth was silent, the inanimate objects here, as he expresses it, they're going to cry out. They will, as we read further into the text of Christ's burial and resurrection. It's an earth-shaking experience. And we'll get to that soon. But what I'm saying is that all creation is being restrained to some degree. Otherwise, there would be a cacophony of praise of Christ. Yeah, I understand this is metaphorically to some degree. But to another degree, it's not. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Paul gives us the theology of creation being restrained because of sin. And what will happen... It, when it's unrestrained. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. Paul is trying to encourage the church and remind them that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Right? So I mentioned before where this robber on the cross, and then he's promised paradise. There, there are two different worlds, if you will. This glory that is revealed to us, what, what are we going to see? What's going to happen? 
that's different than this present time. Verse 19, for the creation waits eager, for, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is, the final state in which you're in your glorified state. You're given a new body without sin. This is the, the end of it all. And there's a certain sense in which he's talking about creation. There's a longing for that, for the culmination, for the last saint to be called in. And he explains why, for verse 20, for creation was subjected to futility. That's the world in which we live right now. Things break down, things fall apart, right? There's not a perfection in it. So, there is a futility in the created world, a frustration, a holding back, if you will. And, of course, it wasn't done willingly. It's not like they tried. But because of him who subjected it in hope, God cursed the earth. He will remove that curse. That's the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's a whole different world. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth unto now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. So, so he's looking at both the, what we would think maybe uh, inanimate and animate objects, both, all of it, all of the world, waiting for that. We ourselves who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, we, we groan inwardly then as we eagerly await the adoption of the sons and the redemption of our bodies. That's what we're looking for, right? A glorified state. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're waiting for that day. The day of the glorious redemption that is in Christ. No wonder... The apostles talk about that being a new heaven and a new earth. There will be an earth that corresponds with the world in which we live exactly. How? I don't know. Same with the body that we get, a glorified body. It will correspond, but it's going to be different. It's going to be absolutely glorious. And all heaven... And all earth will be then freed from their bondage. Released to do what you greatly desire to do. And that is to worship Christ. You've been in moments in which you've expressed appreciation for something wonderful and glorious. Maybe you cried. Maybe it just took your breath away. Maybe you shouted a shout of victory. Whatever that was. It's an expression that you can't even contain and withhold. 
Because whatever you're experiencing or seeing or doing is something grand and glorious. And it is just a response. And it's a, a joyous state. That is the hope that we're looking for in, in Christ, who is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. The earth testifies of Christ right now in that state. We just are too dim-witted to see it. Look for it. I would challenge you and call others. Anything absolutely glorious and wonderful is simply a shadow of who Christ is. I'll read you this and then we'll go, I think, one more observation. I'll read this text for you. It's one of my favorite. This is the Apostle John who writes this very letter, inspired under the Holy Spirit, also writes us the last book of the Bible in Revelation. Chapter 4, John's focus then goes straight to the throne room of God. And in it, he sees Jesus Christ. And he sees creation around the throne, around Jesus Christ. And the text says in Revelation 4, 8, and they never cease, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's what they're singing. It isn't that they're trying to say that. It's just that is the expression of the truth and verity of who Christ is. It is just their response, a response of praise and worship and glory. This isn't hard. I mean, we have a hard time sometimes. We make ourselves smile when we sing. That's a good practice to do, by the way. I'm so happy, 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 right? All right, then we have to remember, oh, yeah, what am I singing about? Okay, let me smile. There'll be no forced smile. There'll be no forced praise. This will just come naturally for what you want. You will not be bored. <laughs> you will not want something else to do. It is your greatest delight and greatest joy. Will you look by faith? Scripture talks about these creations around the throne of God. And then the 24 elders who represent the church then specifically, because this is to the church, this revelation. They also fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. All of creation will be freed up. Freed from the futility in which it now exists to truly express Jesus is Lord.
I'm going to take time and I'll do this maybe quickly. Hmm. Yeah, I think I can. I want to see one more scene. Back to our text in verse 23. We looked at the big picture of the cross, three. We focused in on the little placard. Now I want you to look right below his feet, immediately. Below the feet of the king of glory. There are soldiers there. And we talked about them last week. What are they doing? Well, they're gambling for Jesus' clothes. They're casting lots. They fulfill scripture unwittingly. When I look at that scene, they have Jesus' clothes. I think this tunic that they're gambling for is representative of the fact that he is indeed the only mediator between God and man. It is the robe of a high, a high priest that would have a seamless garment like that. And here you have these soldiers who just finished torturing and beating. They were doing their job, you might say, but I think they enjoyed it. And then now they're just greedily interested in garments. I can't imagine the kind of restraint that God has towards sinners. And you see it right there demonstrated, don't you? I wouldn't have such restraint. I can't imagine the kind of restraint that God has. To allow sinners to do that. When they tried to arrest Jesus, you remember in Luke in Matthew chapter twenty-six, Jesus reminds his disciples, Hey, if I wanted to get away from this, you know, I can appeal to my father at any moment. He's gonna send me twelve legions of angels. That's a military term, legion. Because it's intended to be. An angel is not an effeminate character. An angel is a very messenger of God, very powerful and can accomplish much. One single angel destroyed about 185,000 at a single event in Sennacherib. Twelve legions would be 72,000. Under the Roman numbers, could you imagine what 72,000 could do? A couple of angels just easily disable these Romans' guards at the tomb, we'll learn later. And they move a stone to enable the disciples to come and see Jesus. Jesus could call. But how in the world would these scriptures then be fulfilled if he did? This is why he doesn't. This is why he restrains. He is patiently on his own timeline working out redemption. 
But I'll read you a scripture from the Apostle Peter, who was among one of these disciples. He reminds us in 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason he didn't kill them on the spot, wipe them away, as well as many others, imagine this whole crowd mocking him, the whole religious authority mocking him, Rome in what they're doing in violation of God's law. There is great restraint. There's great restraint at the cross to not drag each one of those up and nail them up as they should be, as the robbers so did express as well. We are deserving of this. God has great patience. He has more patience than you could ever imagine. That's why we have this day. Because his mercy is new every morning. If you wake up and breathe, it's because of his mercy. It's because of his grace, a gift of breath, mercy, and and not to absolutely suffocate us as we might deserve. God is patient. And he allows all of this to take place to accomplish his greater purpose. But don't have a mistake about what's going on. It isn't that God's tolerant of any of it. And that's what Peter was driving at. The day of the Lord is coming. Great judgment will be here. As surely as Christ came at what we think is the first advent, he's coming again. And his glory will be on full display. And all who do not take refuge in him will be overcome by his beautiful light. Darkness will not stand. Sin will not stand in his presence. It will all be destroyed. His patience is like a cup. His wrath is poured in. But one day... It will overfill and it will be tipped and judgment will come. So don't take it for granted. When his patience is full, his cup will be emptied. But today is a day of salvation. It is a day, a glorious day. It is a great day of his patience and his kindness towards you and me and your loved ones. And I would admonish you and myself and others to simply look and live. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for Christ. 
the glimpses of his glory that we've looked at on the cross. I pray that we will be increasingly changed to behold the beauty of Christ. May we see and savor in all we do. May Christ be exalted, lifted up, and we, we find our satisfaction in him alone. In this particular season, I do pray for special moments and times in which we may declare his glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment now to think on these things. Respond directly to Christ the way he has spoken to you. I'll give you a private moment of reflection right now. Father, I pray indeed we will put our hope and trust in you and you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to sing about Christ specifically, and so I'm going to throw an audible, but I think you know this one, 506 in Christ alone. I'd like to focus in, in hear ye sing of Christ alone, 506 in your hymn book. Let's do the first and the last 506, Jerry, if you'll come and lead us. 506.
Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon the earth. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Amen and amen. We're dismissed. Thank you.